Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 27th, 2015. Yeah, I'm easing my, my way back into the saddle here. Had to uh, put the pirate ship on in dry deck for a few days. Was not able to get a program out yesterday. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down and stop, open up your Bibles and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to actually put you know God's Word back in context to see if people are actually telling us the truth about what God wants us to do, what God wants us to believe, you know, things like that. Or if the things that they're saying um, is not actually what God has revealed in his word. And we use sound biblical exegesis, good proper hermeneutics, and a little bit of humor along the way. Now, uh, today is Wednesday. I did not. I was not able to get a program out yesterday. My apologies. I had to take a personal day. Um, and today we're going to actually do our light episode for the week. And I know some of you are sitting there going, what? Yeah, no, I, I know, I know. Uh, if you, you could pray for me, I would appreciate it. Uh, you know, things have been a little bit topsy turvy, uh, you know, in other aspects of my life, and uh, hopefully things will settle down now. But uh, anyway, what we're going to be doing today, we're going to be listening to a lecture by Phil Johnson entitled, Is That Voice in My Head Really the Holy Spirit? Is That Voice in My Head Really the Holy Spirit? I think. Phil Johnson does a good job here. This was recorded about the time of the Strange Fire Conference, and uh, I think he uh, is dealing with a very important topic. I mean, does God anywhere in his word teach us that we need to be, you know, kind of like Jedi following impressions and, you know, and things that pop up in our mind? You know, is that from really from God or not? So uh, without any further ado, here is Phil Johnson, and is that voice in my head really the Holy Spirit? I wanted to continue the theme of this week's conference on the charismatic movement and talk about something that I really wanted to deal with more thoroughly, but really only had a chance to touch on in a, in a couple of my seminars this week. And it's the theme of prophecy. How does God speak today? And does he speak directly to people into their minds? I've had now almost 40 years of experience in Christian publishing. And one of the enduring lessons I've learned from my work is that there are a lot of very strange people out there <laughs> writing books that ought never to have been written. And Christian publishers actually publish a lot of nonsense. And it's frustrating to see that happen, but I know from experience that there is a thousand times more garbage that fortunately never sees the light of day simply because it's so bad that no publisher would ever publish it. And all of it is submitted by people who really do think what they've written is full of spiritual insight. And of course, the ones who are inevitably the most impervious to critique or correction are the people who claim that what they have written was given to them directly by God. A lot of people like that out there. When I was working as acquisitions editor at Moody Press, it was my job to read all of the incoming manuscripts. And so I was perhaps overexposed to a lot of that stuff which may explain why I'm so grouchy today, right? <laughs> I had to read a lot of stuff. And I remember one day I received a manuscript in the mail with a cover letter 
that I've kept all these years, and I want to quote it to you. It said this. This is the cover letter on this manuscript. He says, this is from the author, It may surprise you to learn that I'm just 22. My work, however, speaks for itself. These truths, indeed these revelations, were given to me by God, and they need to be published for the whole world. By the way, he says, I'm familiar with your policy of no cash advances. Do you have a no exceptions policy as well? That made me smile too, and I set the manuscript aside thinking this is not something I'm going to be interested in. And I thumbed through it over a few days, and sure enough, it was, it was just bizarre. It was strange, and it wasn't anything that any sensible person with any knowledge of scriptural truth would think God revealed, but this fellow did. But a few days later, before I even had time to answer that first cover letter, I got a second letter from the same guy, and I recognized it because it was very distinctive envelope and very distinctive handwriting. So I opened it right away, and here's what he said in his second letter. Stop the presses. My book must not be published in its present form. The material that does not edify must come out. I thought, well, that's pretty much all of it. (laughs) But he says, new material must replace it. And so I read on. It was a fairly longish letter. And he explained to me why he wanted to issue this emergency recall of his inspired manuscript. Quote, My former pastor, Sister B.R. Hicks, in direct disobedience to God, lavished the prophetic gift meant for me on another whom she favored. She's not repented. She will not answer my mail. And she may not even acknowledge that my words are legitimate prophecy. He says, I greatly fear for her and the church which she pastors. And I thought, so do I. (laughs) Apparently, he'd had some kind of falling out with his pastor or pastorix. And it involved some kind of moral failure on his part because he wrote this. Sister Hicks may tell you that I fell from grace, but the heartbreaking truth is I was pushed She repeatedly turned me away from my calling. And as a result, everything God gave me in the way of prophecy came to me in my separated, backslidden state. But now I've been praying and fasting and studying, and I have a better understanding of God's message. So help me, if you will, and return my manuscript for revision, which I gladly did. (laughs) Now, you can tell from the way he writes that in a twisted kind of way, this is a very clever guy. He's not stupid. He's literate, he's articulate, he's even a little bit witty, but he was being totally serious when he claimed to believe that what he had written was inspired by God, and yet, oddly enough, his belief that God had inspired him didn't keep him from wanting to make revisions to the text. I've thought about this often, because in microcosm, it's sort of a picture of what is wrong with modern charismatic prophecy. The text is always flexible. It's that tendency is the very thing that has puzzled me the most about people who think God is giving them private revelation. The messages they receive always seem very pliable, don't they? The meaning of the message changes with the circumstances. There's no legitimate hermeneutical approach for interpreting messages that you think came directly to you from God. And the meaning of any given message from God is treated like a clay figure. You can bend it and shape it into any form that pleases you. And it's especially true of dreams, which have, you know, hazy elements and all that. If you want to impose a meaning on a vivid dream after the fact, it's very easy to do. And there are some famous examples of this kind of malleable prophecy you remember that famous incident, I think we've referred to it this week, but nobody's really described it, in the late 1970s when Oral Roberts claimed he saw a vision of Jesus 900 feet tall, and Oral said that that this giant vision had told him to build a hospital, a 60-story structure in South Tulsa. It was going to be called the City of Faith. And he built the building, but the fact is no more than three stories of that 60 story building were ever used as a hospital. In fact, most of that building has, for the past 20 years, sat completely empty. And now more than 20 years after Oral Roberts' vision of the 900-foot Jesus, 
The last figures I heard were that more than 80% of that building had never had any tenants. It was finally sold to someone else, and I'm not sure what they're doing about it. But to his dying day, Oral Roberts insisted that all those prophecies that were given to him, you remember it was in the midst of that that he said God would strike him dead if he didn't raise the money for it and and all of that. That was a, a huge scandal at the time, widely publicized, brought great dishonor on the name of Christ because he did all of this in the name of Christ, claiming God had told him to do it. And in 1989... Oral Roberts explained to Charisma magazine why this great fiasco was what God had planned all along. He said God had finally given him a new message that explained the whole thing. Quote, Zora Roberts speaking, God said in my spirit, I told you to build the city of faith large enough to capture the imagination of the entire world. And it did. I didn't want this revelation to be localized in Tulsa, though. Robert said, as clearly in my spirit as I've ever heard him, the Lord gave me an impression. You and your partners have merged prayer and medicine for the entire world. He said, for the church, for all generations, it is done. Robert says, I then asked, is that why after eight years you're having us close the hospital and the medical school? And God said, yes, the mission has been accomplished Now listen to this. This is Oral Roberts putting words in God's mouth. The mission has been accomplished in the same way that after the three years of public ministry, my son said on the cross, Father, it is finished. And so in the mind of Oral Roberts, that massive failed prophecy, which was played out in shame across the front pages of secular newspapers all over the world. The whole thing was no embarrassment at all. In his imagination, it was comparable to the finished work of Christ. That's why we say, some of this stuff is blasphemy. It's just flat out blasphemy. And listen, if you can twist your interpretation of the divine plan after the fact like that, there's just no reason ever to regard any prophecy as false. And I could give you a long list of similarly famous failed prophecies. Benny Hinn made a whole string of them back in 1989. He and several other supposed prophets often make annual prophecies. They've been prophesying for the past 15 years that this is the year, every year they say this, this is finally the year that Fidel Castro will die. And Castro refuses to die for these guys. (laughs) But Benny Hinn did this. The, the, The one that stands out in my mind was 1989 because as he looked forward to the 1990s, he claimed that God had shown him several important events that would surely come to pass in the coming decade. At the head of his list was the death of Fidel Castro. And said that was going to happen in the 1990s. I'd say he missed that one. He also said that the... And this was kind of famous that he said this because it was a scandal at the time. He claimed that the homosexual community in America would be destroyed by fire before 1995. Don't know what he had in mind there, but obviously it, it had a lot of people concerned. He said that a major earthquake was going to cause havoc on the East Coast before the year 2000. None of those things happened, of course. But that hasn't stopped Benny Hinn from making fantastic prophecies. And he never goes back and revisits the false prophecies that he made and acknowledges them or explains them. He predicted now more than 15 years ago that Jesus would soon appear visibly in person at one of his healing crusades. And so crowds of people came thinking, is this the crusade that Jesus will appear visibly in? And his followers believe him. Some of them are afraid to doubt his prophecies because they think doubting Benny's private revelations from God is tantamount to doubting a a divine promise from God. You have this almost invincible gullibility that's infected the modern charismatic movement, and it's, it's blending now into the evangelical movement. And it has created an environment in which virtually anyone can make any kind of bizarre prophecy he wants, and someone, usually lots of people, are going to take it seriously. And if it turns out to be wrong, people will either forget or reinterpret the prophecy. And if he happens to get one prediction right 
or even partially right, people will eagerly publicize that one correct guess as, as if it were irrefutable proof that the prophet is inspired by God. About 15 years ago, I was in India. Chris Williams is here with us this morning. He's over there in Sammy. And I, I was there with him in Pune, his hometown. And there was an American evangelist there holding open-air meetings not far from where I was staying. And this was a guy who I never heard of here in America, but he was famous apparently in Pune because he drew thousands of people to his crusades. And he, he was known for frequently making prophecies of, about disaster. He had prophesied earthquakes, floods, famines, a classic sort of prophet of doom. And you know, if you make enough prophecies like that, chances are one of them's going to kind of correspond with reality someday. And this guy goes to India and he gathers huge crowds because he knows how to play on the fears of people who are steeped in the superstitions of Hinduism. And his constant theme is these prophecies about coming disasters. And somewhere, sometime, this guy had been doing some open-air meetings in Pune, and he prophesied, apparently, a series of disasters. He said there would be storms and earthquakes and financial disasters and all that. And as it happened that year, while I was in Pune, it was February of that year, the city was hit with a small jolt. It was a minor earthquake. Well, they're as common there as they are here in Southern California. It wasn't enough to do any property damage, but you could definitely feel it. In fact, I remember feeling it. I was asleep, jet-lagged, and it, it kind of knocked me out of bed, you know. So it was, it was a scary little jolt. And my first thought was, because we'd been talking about this guy the day before, that guy is going to claim this is a fulfillment of one of his prophecies, and that's exactly what he did and uh, Chris and I were, were visiting someone that night who happened to live right across the street from the vacant lot where this guy was holding his open-air meetings. And that night, more than 10,000 people showed up to hear this counterfeit prophet. They didn't notice the fact that really no actual disaster had ever happened. The famines and the financial disasters this guy predicted never materialized. The earthquake itself wasn't really a disaster. But this guy was claiming that was proof that he spoke for God, and multitudes believed him. It's a worse kind of charlatanism, but it's more common now than it's ever been. And yet, the idea that God speaks routinely to his people has found more widespread acceptance today in the evangelical movement than at any time in the history of evangelicalism. And this notion that God speaks directly to people is found in some surprising places. It's not only charismatics who believe God speaks fresh words of prophecy to them. Southern Baptists devoured Experiencing God about a decade ago, a book written by Henry Blackaby and Claude King. That book suggests that one of the main ways, the most important way, they say, the Holy Spirit leads believers is by speaking to them directly. And in fact, the whole point of that book is that if you are not hearing and responding to messages and impressions on your mind that come from God on a regular basis, then you're not experiencing God the way you should. So that's the title of the book, Experiencing God. And according to Henry Blackaby, when God gives an individual message that pertains to the church, it needs to be shared, he said, with the whole body. It needs to be proclaimed the same as we would proclaim Scripture, and in practice, these fresh prophecies usually get more airplay than Scripture itself. And as a result, extra-biblical words from the Lord have become kind of commonplace even in some Southern Baptist circles. And I want to point out to you that those kinds of messages, those God told me this or God showed me that about you, that only differs in degree, not really in kind, from Oral Roberts' 900-foot-tall visions. It's the same thing. He just had bigger visions. The very same superstition that allows Oral Roberts to believe he got a message from a giant Jesus is the same kind of belief that makes a Southern Baptist reader of experiencing God think God is speaking directly to him. It's the very same theology. You find the same thing in Bill Gothard. You find it in lots of surprising circles. It's, it's at odds with the biblical principle of sola scriptura, which is 
one of the foundations of Protestantism. We believe, don't we, that the written Word of God, the Bible, contains everything that is necessary for salvation and for growth in grace. That's what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, somebody might say, well, that just says it's profitable. It doesn't say it's the only thing. Well, listen to the next verse. It's given to us that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for all good works. That's an explicit statement of the sufficiency of Scripture. And what it means is there is no need for extra-biblical revelation. The Bible equips us for all necessary good works. It gives us all of the explicit guidance that we can get from God. It's the only place we can be certain God speaks with infallible authority. And it contains principles that help us to be wise and discerning as we pursue the course of our lives. And beyond that, we just... Trust the providence of God to order our steps. That's what Scripture teaches us. You don't need an explicit message from God telling you whom to marry or where to go to school or where to go on the mission field. But if you obey the explicit commands and the implicit principles of the Bible, God promises He will order your steps beyond that. You can trust Him to direct your walk. So you can step out in faith without any direct message from God telling you which way to step. The Lord orders your steps by providence, not by private revelation. We talked about providence last week, and then that was one of my seminars in the conference this week, also a a different message on providence. And if you didn't hear that, go ahead and download it and listen to it. But... The principle is basically this. If your life is in harmony with all the commands and the principles of the Bible, you can actually do what you want without beating yourself up with introspection or fretting over whether God has told you to do something or not. He hasn't promised to tell us every decision we need to make, but he's urged us to trust him that he will order our steps. If he's given you explicit instructions you'll find those instructions in the commandments of the Word of God, not in your inner sensations, certainly not in the dreams of your own imagination. There is simply no warrant anywhere in Scripture to listen for God's voice to speak to us in our heads or or to, to try to find subjective impressions that will guide us or any other means that would bypass the Word of God. The Bible is God's message to us. Trust it and lean on it And lean not to your own understanding, and especially not to whatever subjective impressions you might feel. Now, people always ask, but doesn't the Spirit of God move our hearts and impress us with specific duties and callings? Yes, He does, but He works through the Word of God to do that. Experiences like that are are not prophetic, and they're not authoritative. If you get a feeling you should do something, there's no authority behind that because there's no command in Scripture for you to follow that feeling. In fact, Scripture warns you against just following your feelings. Those urges and sensations that we feel are not revelation, but if in, to whatever degree they are true at all, they are the result, the effect of illumination when the Holy Spirit applies the Word of God to our hearts and opens our spiritual eyes to its truth, and then we need to guard carefully beyond that against allowing our experience or our own subjective thoughts to eclipse the authority and the certainty of the more sure word of prophecy. And this is a very practical application of the principle of sola scriptura. If you seek private messages from God or urges and leadings telling you things that you know you won't find in the Bible, you've abandoned the principle of sola scriptura in your thinking. Those mental impressions are not trustworthy. They're not authoritative. And therefore, they contain far more potential for mischief than they do for good. So no Christian ever ought to be taught to order any aspect of his life around impressions like that. It's unfortunate how much interest there is in that today, how much, how much energy is spent 
trying to decipher and understand subjective revelations and fresh words of prophecy in an era when the average born-again Christian is so ignorant of the objective revelation, the more sure word that God has given to us in His Word, the Bible. And yet everybody's looking for fresh words of prophecy. When knowledge of Scripture is at such a low point in the church... This is the worst possible time for believers to be looking for divine truth in their dreams and visions and subjective impressions. And this quest for additional revelation from God actually denigrates the sufficiency of the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That's what Jude 3 calls it. It it implies that God just hasn't said enough in the Scriptures. We need more. It assumes that we have this need for more truth from God than He has given us in His written Word. But if we really believe Scripture is sufficient, if we really embrace the principle of sola scriptura, the sufficiency of the Bible, how can we be seeking the voice of God in subjective experiences? We can't, and we shouldn't. Now, even good people, wise people who believe Prophecy and divine revelation have ceased. Not charismatics, but just people who are living their ordinary lives like you and I. Often, we all have this tendency, I think, to fall into the trap of thinking God is speaking directly to us through some subjective means. Well-meaning Christians often think that in order to understand the will of God on any given matter, they, they need some kind of impression or strong feeling. And they will interpret that as a disclosure of the divine will. That's a dangerous assumption to make. And it is not at all hard to find examples from church history of groups and individuals who believed God was speaking to them apart from Scripture, and that assumption led them to disaster. I mentioned this this week during one of my seminars, and several people came to me afterwards and said, point me to some of those incidents in church history so that I can follow up on this. You know, my own historical hero figure, Spurgeon, occasionally fell into this tendency. And yet, he saw the dangers of it, and he strongly cautioned against it at the same time. Listen to what he has to say, quote, this is good advice, by the way, from Spurgeon, even though he himself sometimes had a tendency to think God was telling him something in his head or whatever. He didn't do that very often, but it happened occasionally. And he warns against the practice. He says this, Some, I know, fall into a vicious habit, namely of ordering their footsteps according to impressions. He says, Every now and then I meet people whom I think to be rather weak in the head, who journey from place to place and perform follies by the gross under the belief that they're doing the will of God because of some silly whim of their diseased brain that is imagined to be an inspiration from above. He's talking about people, you know, who, and there are people like this today, who sort of, as they go from place to place, if they imagine that God told them to stop and go up to that door and knock on the door and speak to the person there, they'll, they'll do it. Which you, you always hear about the amazing coincidences that happen as a result of that. What you don't hear about are the multitudes of disasters and embarrassing situations that come out of that kind of behavior. That's what Spurgeon's talking about. He says here, There are occasionally impressions of the Holy Spirit that guide men where no other guidance could have answered the end. I've been the subject of impressions like that myself. But to live by impressions is oftentimes to live the life of a fool and even to fall into downright rebellion against the revealed Word of God. It's not your impressions, but that which is in Scripture that must always guide you. And he quotes from Isaiah, "...to the law and to the testimony, if it's not according to that Word, that impression isn't from God." And he says this, it may proceed, your impression, from Satan or from your own distempered brain. Spurgeon says, pray to the Lord, order my steps according to your word. Now, normally, people who lean heavily on mental impressions like that don't have any intention of equating their own subjective feelings with divine revelation. They think of this as as a subjective leading of God, and they would see it, at least in the way they think about it, as something far less than prophetic. But no matter what kind of significance you put in those mental impressions, it is never wise to seek divine guidance that way. In the first place, there's no warrant for that in Scripture. Nowhere does the Bible 
ever encourage us to attempt to discern God's will by looking inward at ourselves or thinking how we feel or following impressions. And in fact, that sort of decision-making leads to confusion and disappointment and sometimes spiritual tragedy. And the truth is that to treat subjective impressions as messages from the Holy Spirit is really no different from claiming divine revelation. And although I think most Christians, at least most Christians in our circles who follow these subjective impressions, would never dream of listening to extra-biblical prophecies like Oral Roberts' 900-foot Jesus. In effect, they're doing the same thing, just on a smaller scale. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on uh, Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture by Phil Johnson. Is that voice in my head really the Holy Spirit? Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater proudly presents Sessions with Mildred. Now, Mildred, I have some very important information to show you in this next video. It's going to give you the tools necessary to know if you're hearing directly from God. But anyways, Dr. Barbie, we are going to talk today about symbols. Yes, I like Because symbols. oftentimes God speaks in symbols. So outside of symbols, what are some of the ways that God speaks to his people? Well, major ways through his word, but his Holy Spirit speaks to us and communicates to it through a symbolic language, through even signposts on the highways, through music, through the dance, through nature. The other day I was at your home and a dove kept flying by the window. And to me, it was the Holy Spirit bringing messages through the dove appearing, which represents the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, Mildred, God talks to us in many, many, many ways in everyday life, which is why... I got you with this. A Cracker Jack prize? Yes. I mean, no. Do you have any idea how many box tops I had to send in for this thing? Um, no. It was a lot. It doesn't matter. Anyway, what you see before you is, in fact, your very own Holy Spirit decoder ring. What does it do? What doesn't it do? When I turn it on, it has the ability to warn you when the Holy Spirit is trying to give you an important message. Like what? <laughs> I'll show you. We know that the Holy Spirit can talk to us in all kinds of ways. He could even be trying to send me a message through this radio right now. I'm on the to hell. Hold on, let me change the station. for now <laughs> let me help you turn on the ring i have a great idea why don't you take it out for a test drive aren't you gonna come with me <laughs> you know i can't leave being under house arrest is so much fun 
if I were to leave my house for more than 20 seconds, then the cops would show up and tase me again. And who wants that? Now here's how the ring works. When it beeps like this, that means that there's a sign that you need to see in the area around you. Um, Mr. Sunshine, when the ring goes off, how am I going to know what the message is? Trust me, you'll know. It'll be so obvious that you won't miss it. And on top of that, the ring will make this sound when you've guessed it correctly. It couldn't be simpler. You are now free to leave. I'm really sorry to have to bother you at your house. They told me that these sessions are a part of the pastor's vision and that if I don't go, it will be a sin against God. You think that somebody under house arrest would be free from any and all ministerial obligations, but no! I guess that would make too much sense. I'm sorry that I caused you so much pain. It's all your... I mean, not your fault. <laughs> my, my, look at the sun. It's time for you to go. Have fun with the decoder ring! This is gonna go off. I see a McDonald's. I see a sign twirler dressed up as a hot dog. And I see the town park. You want me to go to the park? Okay. There's a dog eating grass. His owner is picking up the poop, and there's a bird flying towards the road. Is the bird a message? The little bird just got hit by the truck. I think I get the message. see now is a couple having a picnic by the pond. You are such a jerk! I think they just broke up. Um, there's a tetherball court. But there's no tetherball or rope. It's just a pole. I, I don't see any kind of message here. I think you're broken. I'm gonna take you off my finger now. Oh no, it's stuck. I'm gonna have to go get some soap from the bathroom. I can't let you do that, Mildred. Oh dear, it's become self-aware. Mildred, you and I are bonded as one. I am an instrument here to reveal his secrets to you. I will deliver his messages to you, for it is his will that you should know them. We are going to be together. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Back. 
morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that subjective impressions that pop up in your brain or in your heart or things like that, that they aren't actually the Holy Spirit. That's really a good thing, by the way. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. If you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to post office box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture by uh, Phil Johnson on, uh, on is that voice in my head really the Holy Spirit? Here we go. Now, back to church history. This very issue was pretty hotly debated during the Great Awakening. This was a point of doctrine over which, at first, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield disagreed. They agreed on almost everything. But they disagreed with this. They just didn't see eye to eye. George Whitfield was far more willing than Jonathan Edwards to treat subjective impulses as if they could reliably reveal the Holy Spirit's leading. Jonathan Edwards didn't believe that. It's ironic that Edwards has become kind of a poster boy for today's Reformed charismatics because they quote him selectively. But he did not believe God leads people this way or gives private messages. And he warned Whitfield, that's dangerous. And in fact, in 1740, Edwards confronted Whitfield on this very issue. Let me read to you a letter Edwards wrote about it. This is his own description of that event. He says, quote, Jonathan Edwards, I have indeed told several persons that I once purposely took an opportunity to talk with Mr. Whitfield alone about these subjective impulses, and I've mentioned many particulars of our conference together on that matter, I told him some reasons I had to think he gave too great heed to these subjective feelings. And I've told what manner of replies he made and what reasons I offered against such such things. And I also said that Mr. Whitfield didn't seem to be offended with me, but he did not seem to be inclined to have a great deal of discourse about it. And that in the time, he didn't appear to be convinced by anything I said. So they had this discussion. Whitfield really didn't want to talk about it, and he wasn't convinced. And in Ian Murray's biography of Jonathan Edwards, which is great, by the way, if you've never read it, you should, he recounts this episode. And Murray says that at the end of the Great Awakening, this whole question of private revelation, does God speak to us in our heads, that became, according to Ian Murray, the talking point of the whole country. And Edwards warned his congregation not to put any stock in their subjective impressions. He saw this as a particular danger in a time of revival when, you know, you have religious affections heightened and the imagination is more active than usual. He saw this danger unfolding and so he warned against it. Let me quote Ian Murray. This is from his his biography of Jonathan Edwards, he says, the impressions or impulses which Jonathan Edwards criticized were varied in character. Sometimes they involved an element of the visionary. Sometimes they appeared to provide foreknowledge of future events. And sometimes they were accompanied by and supported with random texts of Scripture. Against this belief... Edwards argued that a Christian might indeed have a holy frame and sense from the Spirit of God, but the imaginations that attend it are but accidental and not directly attributable to the Holy Spirit. seems Edwards wasn't the sort of charismatic a lot of charismatics today want to portray him as. He had carefully studied this issue. He was convinced that this tendency to follow subjective impulses was a dangerous road down which to go. And he wrote this, quote, An erroneous principle than which scarce any has proved more mischievous to the present glorious work of God is this notion that it's God's manner in these days to guide his saints by inspiration or by immediate revelation. 
Edwards said, this practice is full of danger, and not the least danger is its hardening effect on the person who supposedly receives the revelation. As long as a person has a notion that he is guided by immediate direction from heaven, that makes him incorrigible and impregnable in all his conduct. That's what Edward said. He knew from both church history and personal experience that this was a dangerous thing. Here's what he said. This is Edwards. Many godly persons have undoubtedly in this and other ages exposed themselves to woeful delusions by a tendency to lay too much weight on impulses and impressions as if these were immediate revelations from God to signify something future or to direct them where to go and what to do. And Edwards answered this tendency this way, quoting him again, I would therefore entreat the people of God to be very cautious how they give heed to such things. I've seen them fail in very many instances. And I know by experience that impressions being made with great power and upon the minds of a true, yea, eminent saint, even these are no sure signs of there being revelations from heaven. I've known such impressions to fail. And in some instances, attended with all of these circumstances. In other words, even the the strong impressions that come to the most godly people frequently fail. And I think I know one of the things Edwards had in mind. Whitfield, who made a prophecy that his wife would have a son and the son would be a boy and the boy would be named John and he would go on to have a ministry that was comparable to John the Baptist. Didn't happen. Whitfield's wife had a boy, but he died at the age of four months. And Whitfield was terribly disappointed by it. Ian Murray writes this. He said, Whitfield at once recognized his mistake. And Whitfield said this, quote, I misapplied several texts of Scripture. Upon these grounds, I made no scruple of declaring that I should have a son and that his name was to be John. And Whitfield goes on to describe how disappointed he was when that prophecy wasn't fulfilled, but he knew the error was his. Murray quotes Whitfield at a later point in his ministry when Whitfield recounts the folly of placing too much weight on internal impressions. And Whitfield wrote this, quote, Many good souls, both among clergy and laity, for a while mistook fancy for faith and imagination for revelation. So he grew to regret the fact that he'd put so much emphasis on that. A generation before Edwards and Whitfield, one of my favorite characters in church history, Cotton Mather, experimented with the same tendency to think that God was giving him direct truth. And after three major prophecies of his failed, Cotton Mather came to the same conclusion as Whitfield. That is a dangerous and deadly and unbiblical practice. Whitfield said, many good souls fell into this error. The fact is, many good souls still fall into the same error. Many, and it might even be correct to say most Christians, believe somehow that God uses these subjective promptings to guide us in making major decisions. And and if you do a thorough search of church history, it would undoubtedly confirm that Most believers who lean heavily on these immediate revelations or subjective impressions that they think come come from God, they all have experiences that are embarrassing and confusing and disappointing and frustrating. It's a dangerous practice. And nothing in Scripture even suggests that we should ever try to discern the will of God or, or understand the Word of God by personal guidance or fresh prophecy or whatever by listening to subjective impressions. What we know of of the will of God is revealed to us in the Word of God, the Bible. One of the significant contributions almost now 30 years ago in a famous book by Gary Friesen, Decision-Making in the Will of God, that was a controversial book. I think it still is. I thought it was pretty good. It has its faults and all that. But the point he's making is correct. He has a chapter in there that explores the pitfalls of attempting to discern the will of God through these subjective impressions. And the title of that chapter is, Impressions Are Impressions. He says this, quote, If the source of your knowledge is subjective, then the knowledge is also subjective and hence uncertain. 
And at one point he raises the question, how can I tell whether these impressions come from God or from some other source? He says this, quote, this is a critical question because impressions could be produced by any number of sources. They could come from God or Satan or angels or a demon or human emotions like fear or ecstasy could come from hormonal imbalance, insomnia, medication, or an upset stomach. Friesen says, sinful impressions are temptations. Those can be exposed for what they are by the spirit-sensitized conscience and the Word of God. But beyond that, all you have is a subjective quagmire of uncertainty. He's right about that. And again, I'll say, Scripture never commands us to tune in to any inner voice. That's a pagan practice. We're commanded to study and meditate on Scripture. Joshua 1.8, Psalm 1, 1 and 2. We're instructed to cultivate wisdom and discernment. Proverbs 4, verses 5 through 8. We're told to walk wisely and to make the most of our time. Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16. We're ordered to be obedient to God's explicit commands. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2. And John 15, 14. We are never, ever encouraged to listen to inner promptings. And on the contrary, we are warned by Scripture that the human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. We can't understand it, much less trust it. That should make us reluctant to pay much attention to those promptings and messages that seem to arise from within ourselves. By the way, this is, I think, the critical deficiency in Wayne Grudem's position on prophecy. He defines revelation as something God brings to mind. But he never explores the critical issue of how to determine whether that impression in your mind really came from God. That would seem to be the most pressing question of all for someone who's about to declare that this mental image I had came from God or it's a prophecy. That's Grudem's idea, that revelation is whatever God brings to mind. And, and in effect, it means whatever comes to mind. What Gary Friesen wrote was, impressions are not a form of revelation. So the Bible doesn't invest inner impressions with authority to function as indicators of divine guidance. Impressions are not authoritative. Impressions are impressions. That's the true path of biblical wisdom. Haddon Robinson goes even a step further. He wrote a book on this subject, Decision Making by the Book. And he said this, When we lift our inner impressions to the level of divine revelation, we're flirting with divination, fortune-telling. Those who treat subjective impressions as revelatory prophecy are actually practicing a form of crystal-gazing, the equivalent of that. People who are willing to heed inner voices and mental impressions, think about this. They could be listening to the lies of their own deceitful heart. They could be playing with the fantasies of an overactive imagination. They could even be hearing the voice of a demon. Once you put objective criteria aside, there's really no way to know the difference between truth and falsehood. If we had more time, I'd tell you about my visit one Sunday morning to the Anaheim Vineyard a few years ago when this practice of sharing your prophecies was really at its peak. And they would let people in the pews have an opportunity during the worship service on Sunday mornings to stand up and prophesy about messages that they believed they had received directly from God. And on the Sunday I visited, I was there with Lance Quinn, and we sat between two dueling prophets... They had messages from God, each one of these two guys, who flatly contradicted one another. It all had to do with something, I don't know, it had to do with church politics. And they were using their supposed prophetic gifts to wage war on behalf of these two factions in the church. And the most disturbing thing about it, one guy would stand up and say, the Lord tells me that the elders of this church are right in this decision that they made. The other guy stood up and pronounced woe on the elders of the church. And what disturbed me the most was that the leadership of the church allowed these two prophets both to claim that God had told them he was on their side, and the leaders of the church never said a word to try to resolve that conflict. 
I guess they figured God would individually reveal to every person in the pews which side was right. And you can imagine what chaos that would unleash. What does Scripture say? Scripture says we have a more sure word of prophecy. Scripture very clearly addresses this issue. The Apostle Peter did it. And I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll look at this. He settles the whole matter for us by proclaiming the authority and the supremacy of the Bible when he says this, 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Peter says, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What's Peter talking about there? What event is he describing? That's right, it's the transfiguration. This this was an event that may have been the most spectacular experience, spiritual experience, of Peter's life. It was the transfiguration of Christ. When Jesus appeared in his full glory, Peter heard the voice of God. He saw Moses and Elijah face to face. And best of all, he got to see a preview of Christ glorified in his full glory. This was not a, this was not a dream or a vision. This was not an impression in Peter's mind. This wasn't a figment of his imagination. This was real life. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales, not fiction. He saw it with his own eyes. We were eyewitnesses. He heard the voice of God with his own ears. We ourselves heard, we heard this utterance. He was there in person with other apostolic eyewitnesses. We were with him, he says. In other words, when you boil it down, there really wasn't much about this experience that was subjective. Not only Peter, but also James and John could confirm that this was as real as it gets. Remember, remember Peter wanted to build tabernacles and stay up there. It was so good, he didn't want to leave. He didn't want to come back to the real world. And yet, Peter goes on to say that even what he heard with his own ears... And what he saw with his own eyes was not as authoritative as the eternal word of God contained in Scripture. Read on, verse 19. We also have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the day star arises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Now, understand what Peter's saying here. He's not saying that his eyewitness testimony to the transfiguration somehow makes the prophecy of Scripture more sure. He's saying that the Word of God by its very nature is more sure than that experience he had. This is confirmed by his argument in verses 20 and 21 where he establishes the authority and the divine origin of every prophecy of the Scripture. He's talking about the Bible, the written Word of God, Scripture. The Greek word order in verse 19 also supports that this is the true meaning of the text. We have more sure the prophetic word. That's the Greek word order. We have more sure, more sure than what he's just talked about, the prophetic word. And he goes on to say he's talking about the scriptures. More sure than what? More sure than experience. And here, in this case, he's talking about the valid, genuine, multiple eyewitness experience of three apostles. Scripture's more sure than that. Peter's saying that the written word is an even more reliable source of truth than an experience he himself lived through. And if you wanted to paraphrase Peter's message here, what he's saying to his readers is this. Look, James, John, and I saw Christ's glory firsthand, up close, with our own eyes, and heard the voice of God in the midst of that. But if you don't believe us, 
There is one authority even more certain than our testimony. It's the written word of God. The we at the beginning of verse 19 is generic, not emphatic. In other words, it means you and I. Not we who witnessed the transfiguration, but you and I, all of us who are believers, have a word of prophecy that is more sure than any voice from heaven, even an audible voice from heaven. And what is more sure? It's the prophecy of Scripture, verse 20, which is more sure, more reliable, and more authoritative than anyone's experience, including three of the leading apostles. That ought to put subjective experiences in their proper place, right? Remember, Peter's experience wasn't really subjective. What he saw, what he heard was real, and he knew that because others experienced it with him. But he also knew that the written Word of God is more authoritative than the shared experience of three apostles. Why would anyone seek truth in subjective impressions when we have such a sure word of prophecy. Peter admonishes his readers with the reminder that they would do well, verse 19, to pay attention to Scripture as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I love the imagery there. It speaks of a single source of light, like a nightlight, shining in an otherwise totally dark place. And Peter's point is you don't need to grope around in the dark in search of truth. You don't need to feel around in your own heart looking for truth. We should focus all of our vision on the light that is cast by that single source, the written word of God. And meanwhile, thy word, thy written word, the scripture, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. People who turn aside from that lamp and grope in the darkness after subjective impressions, open themselves to all kinds of deception and disappointment, spiritual failure, confusion, and a host of other evils. But those who keep their hearts and minds fixed firmly on the lamplight of Scripture, those are the truly discerning ones. That's Peter's message here. You know, during the Great Awakening... Jonathan Edwards wrote this. Let me read one more quote from Jonathan Edwards to you. He said, Why can't we be contented with the divine oracles, that holy, pure, written word of God, which we have in such abundance and clearness now that the canon of Scripture is completed? Why should we desire to have anything added to the Bible through subjective impulses from above? Why should we not rest in that standing rule that God has given to His church which the apostle teaches us, is even more sure than a voice from heaven. And why should we desire to make the Scriptures speak more to us than it does? Great word from Jonathan Edwards. In another place, he said it like this, They who leave the sure word of prophecy, which God has given to us like a light shining in a dark place, they leave that in order to follow such impressions and impulses, leave the guidance of the polar star to follow a jack-o'-lantern. That's Jonathan Edwards. Colorful, isn't it? That the polar star is a clear and certain guide that never changes. That's the Word of God. A jack-o'-lantern is a whimsical, man-made symbol of superstition that you know moves around wherever you carry it. It's a fitting emblem for those who, who put their trust in feelings and impressions. Scripture says, Proverbs 28, 26, Whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. But the word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. David said, through your precepts I find understanding. You want to be wise, you want to be discerning, immerse yourself in God's word. Learn the word of God. Follow that. Let that be your guide. We need to walk according to the Bible and not be driven by our feelings. That's the heart of true wisdom. It's the only kind of obedience that actually counts. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. You do that, and you will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. Your leaf won't wither, and whatever you do will prosper. That's how Scripture commands us to order our lives. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be obedient to the clear commandments of your word. 
what trips us up is not what we don't understand. What really trips us up, up is what we know and fail to obey. We trust the goodness of your providence to order our steps rightly in everything we do as long as we follow what you've explicitly told us. Help us to do that, and may we, by our obedience, honor Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.